Okay, good evening, everybody. Special thank you to Torah Anytime for sharing this class and many others with people who are not able to join us in person this evening. Topic this evening is Beyond What the Eye Can See. If you had to yell out the answer to the following question, what is the opposite of spiritual? Physical. I think most people would say physical. The opposite of spirituality is physicality. However, I want to share something with you from Rav Shach. Happens to be tonight, yard site of Rav Elazar Menachem Man Shach. He was really the Manhig Hador. He was the leader of the generation during the, uh, the latter part of the 20th century. Rav Shach once said, that the knife that slaughters Ruchnius, that kills spirituality, is not Gashmius, is not physicality, but rather Chitzonius, superficiality. The opposite of spiritual is superficial. And Ruchnius is the Hebrew word, that of the Ruach, of the spirit. The opposite of spirituality, said Rav Shach, is being superficial. Everything we do, every action we take, every reaction, every decision, every word that I say, every thought that I think about you, or about the reality that surrounds me, it's all based on my own unique perception of what my eyes are showing me. What do I see? When somebody says something, I take it personally. It depends how I see this person and how I understand what's being said. Do I feel anger or do I feel compassion? Do I feel empathy or do I feel apathy? Everything that I'm thinking and feeling, it's all based on the way I see the situation in front of me. It's my own perception. I want to share with you, just as an introduction to tonight's discussion, Revolva speaks about the importance of learning Musr. We've heard the, the concept many times, right, how much we need to, to learn Musr. If you had to summarize what exactly is the goal of Limud HaMusr? What are we trying to gain when we learn a Musr Sefer, when we hear a Musr Shmuz? What's the goal? Says Revolva, Hereyedios Amukos Kiblanu. It's possible that we've received, that we've learned deep ideas about life, about Torah, of alichios ba'omek hu inyan acher, but to live ba'amkus, to live in depth, is something entirely different. Right? I could be a deep thinker, I could be a great philosophizer, I could even be a Talmud Chacham, I could be a Torah scholar, but it's one thing to know how to think deeply, to have the methodology of learning. But it's something entirely different. How do I live deeply? 
im kol yediyos hatovos, with all of our good information, yitochein od lichyos chayim pshutim, it's still possible to live a life of simplicity, of naivete, of not really getting people, of not really getting Torah, of not really understanding myself. He writes, Mistakalim b'shamayim, when do we look up to the heavens? Only to know whether or not I should take an umbrella. That's about it. I walk outside, I look up, is it going to rain? No. However, but we don't really feel the awesomeness of the heavens. We look up in a practical sense. So we could see the world around us, but we're not really, the Yiddish expression is, deher. Deher means not just to hear something, but to really let it penetrate you. We could be seeing so many different things happening, but we might not allow ourselves to deher what's actually going on. Revolba says an amazing line, Gam ha'amkin ha'amiti, even the true, in-depth Torah scholar. And if this is being classified by Revolba, that means this is the real deal. Someone who has a real grasp in learning. It could still very well be that the way he lives in his own personal life is like one of the simple people. Because it's not so easy to take the ability to think deeply and translate that into the capacity to live deeply. He says, in a nutshell, this is the goal of Musr. This is the whole notion of working on oneself. It's lichios chaye omeg, to be able to live a life of depth. There's a vast distance between knowing something in depth and living in depth. So what I'd like to explore this evening is this idea of looking for and being able to see more than that which meets the eye. The very beginning of the parsha, we have the famous story: "Vayere love Hashem, Belone Mamre Hashem appeared to Avram in the plains of Mamre, who Yoshev Pesach Ohel, and he was sitting by the entrance of his tent. Vayisa Eina Vayar, he lifted up his eyes and he saw." And behold, there were three men standing upon him. Vayar, and a second time, and he saw. And what did he do? He ran to greet them from his entrance. And he bowed down to the ground, saying, Shalom Aleichem. So Rashi is bothered by the question, why does it say, Vayar, that he saw? Two different times. The Yisa Eina Vayar, he lifted up his eyes and he saw. Behold, there were three men standing there, Vayar, and he saw, and he ran towards them. Sirashi so says the first time we have the word Vayar, it means simply he noticed they were there. It's Ri'ya. He was using his vision. Vahasheni, but the second time the Torah says Vayar that Avram saw, it doesn't mean that he saw them with his eyes, rather Lashen Havana, it means that he understood something deeply. 
Re'iyah, the term for vision, for being able to see, can either mean, I notice you're there, but it could also mean, Havana, there's an understanding. There's a comprehension of the situation. There's something a little bit deeper. What did he understand in this case? He saw they were standing there and they were somewhat hesitant. He realized they didn't want to come over because they were nervous of being matriachim, of, of causing him a hassle. So that second re'iyah, that second looking more in depth, caused him, the yoretz likrosam, to go run and greet them. Because he realized, I need to be proactive here. They're not coming over themselves. Let me take the first step forward. In the very next parak, we have Lot, who seems to do the exact same thing. But there's a little bit of a difference. And this little bit of a difference actually makes a huge difference. It almost is the, the exact same wording. The two angels come to the city of Stom in the evening. And just like Avram was sitting by the entrance of his tent, Lot was sitting at the gate, the entrance of Stom. And he saw them. And he went to greet them. And he bowed down. Wow! Just like his uncle Avram. And Rashi says, Mi Where did he learn this from? He got this from his uncle. This is what Uncle Abe does. People are coming, and he makes sure he goes out, and he greets them, and he says, Shalom Aleichem. Can I get you something? What's the only difference, though, that we find with Lot? How many times did it say Vayar? Only once. Explains the Gurarie, the Maral, in his commentary on Rashi. He says, It's true, like Rashi told us. Mi base of Lamad. He picked this up from the house of Avram. He saw his uncle doing this type of thing. And we know that habit takes control of everything. Why did he greet these strangers? Why did he go out of his way to say, Come, come into my home? Was it because he had that same feeling of, of Avram? He had that same sense of, There are human beings here. The divine is in my presence. I want to be mechabed them. I want to honor them. I want to give them food and drink. I want to make them feel welcomed. That's not where it was coming from. It was Hergel. It was habit. He saw the actions of his uncle and he was just imitating them. But it wasn't real. It didn't penetrate him. There wasn't a re'iyah of Havana. There wasn't a vision of understanding. There was only a super, superficial vision of other people there. Let me do what Avraham did. I've shared this story before, but I think it's one of the most powerful maizim that we have in, in this idea of, of not mimicking, of not just copying something in a very external way. But the goal in life is to understand as deep as possible and to live with that depth. Rav Shlomo Zaman Arbach, when he was a bachar, he was a young man. He used to daven after Shabbos, Motoy Shabbos at the Kosel. 
And there was a very special minion at the Kosel, led by Rav Zerach Braverman, one of the, the Zakanim of Yerushalayim, one of the, the great personalities. And the minion was not your average Mariv Motzei Shabbos minion. It lasted for an hour. Most people, Shabbos is over, daven somewhat quickly, get the car keys, go home, got a lot of things to do. This minion lasted for an hour, and uh, Shlomo Zalman, as a young man, looked forward every week to participate in this minion. He did it for a few years, and then he stopped. Life went on. Only many, many years later, he was having a conversation with someone, and they were asking him, right? Rebbe used to go to the minion, Motzei Shabbos, by the Kosel, Rav Zerich Braverman's minion. Why'd you stop? Shlomo Zalman said, I'll tell you, what would usually happen is that Rabbi Braverman would daven himself. He would lead the minion, and it was from a different world. He had a special niggin, a melody that he would use, and he would be expressing the words, but the words weren't coming out of his vocal cords, they were really emanating from the neshama. And just being part of that tzibur, being part of that minion was, was uplifting. There was one Matzah Shabbos where Rabbi Braverman wasn't there for some reason. So somebody else was leading the davening. Rabbi Braverman had this very unique gesture that he would do when he got to the words in the bracha, Uvahem nege yomam velayla. Right, our engagement, our devotion to learning day and night, he would do something with his whole body. The person who was davening in his place did that exact same motion when he got to the words, Uvahem nege yomam velayla. And at that point I realized, this is not the place for me. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. It's one thing to look up to our Rebbe, to look up to people who are greater than ourselves, but to start copying them, to imitate them, to a point where we don't really know what's real and what's just trying to be somebody I'm not, that which Shlomo Zalman didn't feel comfortable with. So there's Re'iya, which means vision, and there's a deeper Re'iya, which means Havana. I'm not just living superficially, but I'm living in depth. What is the first step? to acquire this second level vision of seeing beneath the surface, of seeing more than meets the eye. I think it comes down, like many things in life, to having a strong desire not to be complacent with superficiality, not to, not to be complacent with the externals of the world around me. Wanting to see more is the first step in being able to see more, and that Ratzon itself could actually be the turning point in one's life. In Parsha Shmos, the first time Moshe encounters Hashem, the famous episode of the burning bush, the Torah tells us, Vayar Hashem kisar liros. Hashem saw that Moshe turned off the path to see what was going on. And right away, Then Hashem called out to Moshe. As soon as he saw that Moshe turned away, Kisar Liros, that he went off the path to see what was happening, then Hashem communicated with him. 
explains the Svorno. Svorno says that when Moshe saw this, this miracle, the bush was burning, it wasn't being consumed, his desire to, to explore it further was not just a curiosity. It wasn't just a sense of, oh wow, that's kind of cool, let me check that out. But rather it was in the category of Habala Taher and Misayanoso. Moshe was looking at everything in life through the lens of what can I gain from this? How can this be an experience that transforms me? How can this uplift me? Habala Taher, he was coming to purify himself, and when Hashem saw that, Vayar Hashem Kisar Liros, that Moshe wants to grow. And therefore he's looking Bahavana to gain real understanding of himself in life. The Yikure Lavalokim, only at that point Hashem calls out Moshe. That was the beginning of the relationship. The story about Rav Yisrael Salanter, a very famous story, that he was walking by a, a shoemaker, and it was getting towards evening, and the shoemaker was sitting there in his little booth. And there was a candle, it was barely burning, but he was making the shoe. And Rabbi Yisrael said to the guy, listen, it's getting late, why don't you go home and get some sleep? And the shoemaker said back to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, listen, as long as the candle burns, I'm going to keep on working. I have a few more minutes, as long as the candle burns. Rabbi Yisrael went back home, and he said that to himself in a meditation for hours, pacing back and forth. As long as the candle burns, I'm going to keep on working. As long as the candle burns, I'm going to keep on working. And in his mind, he was understanding that as as long as the neshama is alive, as long as I'm here and I could accomplish, I'm going to keep on pushing. But you only have the ability to do that if you're looking for the inspiration. That's not automatic. You have to be looking for depth to come to that conclusion. Shlomo HaMelech tells us in Mishle, he gives the following analogy. He says, I was walking by the field of a lazy man. And I saw there were weeds growing everywhere, and the, 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 the fence was down, the stone fence, all scattered throughout the field. So I saw this, and I took this to heart. I looked and I took Musr, and I took the message. What was the message? He applied it to his own life. If we don't continue digging deep and making sure that we're guarding ourselves as we would have field, and there's proper maintenance, and we nurture it, and we nurture ourselves in our neshama, then weeds start to grow, and I will not be productive. I will not be able to produce the fruit that I need to produce. When we look, we always look for something we could take home, something we could actually apply to our lives. Our very humanity, our humanness, seems to be defined based on this ability, based on the capacity to see beyond the surface. We have it towards the end of the Parsha, where Avraham is traveling with Yitzchak and Eliezer and Yishmael. And this is right before the Akedah. So the Torah tells us that Biyom HaShlishi on the third day, this is source number 10, Vayisa Avraham es that Avraham lifted up his eyes, 
and he saw the place from a distance. How did he know that was the place? Hashem never said explicitly, by the way, you're going to find the mountain, it's going to look like this, it'll have this much uh, greenery. How did he know? So the Medish Rabbah tells us that he was walking together with Yitzchak, Eliezer, and Yishmael, and he sees the mountain, Roa Ata Klum. He says to Yitzchak, do you see what I see? Amr Lo, and Yitzchak says back to his father, Ani Roa Nan Kashur Har. I see this cloud on the top of the mountain. At that point, Avram knew this was the place to go. This was the destination. Then he was curious. He didn't stop there. He, ter- he then turns to Eliezer and Yishmael, and he says to them, do you guys see what we see? And they sit back, love, no, we don't see what you're talking about. It's a mountain like any other mountain. At that point, Avram says something, and it sounds harsh. It sounds like a put down, but it's not. He says, okay, you stay here with the donkey. And the Medish Rabbah says, <laughs> because you're kind of like a donkey. Just like the animal doesn't see anything. So too, you're not seeing what we're seeing. Why would he put them down? Right? The, the Yiddish expression, it sounds like a shtoch. Right? He liked them, Eliezer, Yishmael. Why would he put them down? What he was really saying is that the guideline, right, the barometer of what makes a person a Ben Adam, someone who's a full-fledged human being, is are you able to see more than the surface? He first turns to Yitzchak, do you see what I see? Yeah, I get it. Everyone saw the exact same thing physically. Whatever was going on on that mountaintop, all four of them were privy to the exact same experience. But Avram realized that they're not looking beyond the external. Therefore, that's not what a Ben Adam is. That's not what it means to be human. We have to see more than the surface. Shlomo Zaman Arabach, during the Aseris Meitshuva, he would have the custom, he did this even throughout the year, but even more so between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, he would visit elderly people in nursing homes throughout Yerushalayim. And oftentimes, as a bonding experience, he would take one or a few of his grandchildren with him. So there's one particular time they were going together to visit an elderly man. He was somehow related to Rosh Zalman, I think. Uh, his name was Reb Lezer. He was known lovingly as Reb Lezer. So Shlomo Zalman was walking with his grandchild, and they go to the nursing home. And they quietly enter into the room, they knock, there's no response, they walk in, and they see that he's sleeping in his chair. So what do you do? Option number one is, don't wake him up, right? Maybe leave a note, tell one of the, uh, the assistants that we stopped by, let him know that we were here. Option number two is wake him up. By a show of hands, who would say, wake him up? Nobody. 
except for Abchayim. Always, always the odd man out. Who would say not to wake him up? Right? Everyone else would say not to wake him up. Doctor? Wake him. <laughs> okay. So Rishlomo Zalman asked this question to his grandchild. He said, no, what do you think? So his grandchild, after learning about the idea of being machabit, of honoring people, and not waking people up, and gezel shena, we don't want to interrupt their sleep. So he said, I would guess not to wake him up. And Rishlomo Zalman said, Reb Lazer. He started tapping him. Reb Lazer, you have a visitor. Slowly, he opened his eyes, right, the elderly man, and he saw Rishlomo Zalman was standing there with his grandchild, and the first thing he said, he said, Yashar koyach barta. Thank you for breaking my slumber. That was the same phrase that Hashem said to Moshe when he broke the luchos. So Shlomo Zalman explained, obviously if someone's sleeping because they need sleep, don't wake them up. But in this case, he was sleeping in the middle of the day. It's not because he doesn't get enough sleep. It's because he was bored. He wasn't sleeping because he was tired. He was sleeping because he was bored. And if we were just to leave a note, he would feel bad that he missed us. And that's why I felt the right thing was to wake him up. That's re'iyah. That's havana. That's seeing, but not just seeing superficially. Asking deep questions. What does this person really want? Right? We so often have such a strong desire to help people, to do chesed, and, and we're creative. We think of all different ways of doing chesed. But the first step in actually helping someone is to ask ourselves, what do they really need? What would they really appreciate? Right? What's their language of love? How can I say something that could really help them? How can I do something that could actually be beneficial, not just to make myself feel good that I'm doing a chesed? There's a study quoted in the uh, Reader's Digest going back to 2006. This was the first ever global courtesy test where what they did is they sent out undercover reporters. Half of them were men, half were women from the uh, Reader Digest, uh, different places throughout the country. And they sent them to 35 different countries to uh, assess the citizens of their biggest cities. In Canada, they tested the two largest populations, Toronto and Montreal. What were the three tests? Test number one is, they would walk into public buildings 20 times behind people, right behind someone, and they would see if they would hold the door open for them. That was test number one. Test number two is, 20 different times they would go into a small business, into a store, they would purchase something, and they would see whether or not the owner of the store, the person working there, said thank you. And test number three was they would walk in a very busy place in one of these cities, and they would drop a whole stack of papers, and they would see how many, if any, people would be there to help them pick up that stack of papers. So how do you grade this? This is not an exact scientific barometer, but they said for every time they respond on the positive, Namely, they either hold the door open, they say thank you after buying something, or they help pick up the papers, they get one point. So the max score could be 60, right? (coughs) 
They said this was the world's biggest real-life test of common courtesy with more than 2,000 tests of actual behavior. What city came out on top? Boca Raton, Florida. No. (laughs) No, not quite. (laughs) Not quite. What would be your second guess? Hong Kong. (laughs) What? New York City. New York City came out first. Really? Now, it it sounds somewhat surprising, perhaps, for New Yorkers, or even for the non-New Yorkers, right? But you also have to, to take into account, this was 2006. This was five years after the World Trade Center. And there was definitely a real sense of achtos that permeated the city for years after 9-11. Could be part of the, uh, the cheshben. But when they interviewed the people afterwards, people who didn't stop, people who didn't hold the door open, people who didn't help pick up the papers or say thank you, and they asked them the question, why didn't you help the guy? Why didn't you hold the door open for her? So many of them responded, I just didn't notice they were there. So I saw it. I saw that you know, she was walking and she dropped all these papers, but I, I, just, I, I kind of assumed that she had it worked out. I have my thing to do, I have my place to be, and then she'll pick up her papers. It's not like I was being malicious. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm a very nice and considerate person. I just, it didn't dawn on me that she might need a hand. Why don't we see? What are some of the basic reasons why we might see something as a re'iyah, just a vision, but we'll lack the Havana, we'll lack the understanding? Why don't we see deeper? One very common reason is because we're so involved, we're so overwhelmed with our own lives. All the people walking in Midtown Manhattan or somewhere, you know, in Houston or whatever it may have been, I notice you drop your papers, but I don't really see because I have so many things in my mind I can't think of you. Sometimes to really feel someone else's pain when I myself am in pain is almost impossible. Sometimes to daven for somebody else, to really think about their situation and to daven believe shalem with a full open heart is hard when I have so many of my own worries and my own problems. When Yosef HaTzadik was in jail, so he was in jail having no clue that he would ever come out. Right? He had no glimpse into his future. And then you have the Saramashkim, you have the butler and the baker. These were royalty, right? people who worked under Pharaoh. And they're also thrown into the dungeon with Yosef. Now, these people were not the creme de la creme, right? They were not beautiful, ehrlich, special neshamas. They were pretty lowly people. They were defined as rishoyim, as wicked. Torah tells us, though, v'yovo aleim Yosef v'boker. Yosef comes in the morning and he sees the, the butler and the baker. V'yar osam v'hinam v'hinam zoafim. And he sees they don't look themselves. They're distressed. The Zoafim. So the Yishel, Paro, Asheri Toba Mishmar, he asked them the question, Guys, what's going on? Madua Panechem Hayom. Why do you look so down? Why do you look so negative today? 
And then they tell him, we had these bad dreams, and he interprets the dreams. And if you look at it in the scope of Yosef's life, and really the whole destiny of Klal Yisrael, that was the turning point. It was at that moment in time that these men realized that Yosef has this very unique power, this ability to interpret dreams. And that's why eventually he was mentioned to Paro, and he was taken out of prison, and he was made the viceroy of Mitzrayim, and he was able to keep the Jewish people safe in Goshen. The turning point was, guys, what's going on? Vayaro some, he saw them, and he saw they were distressed. Explains the Rebbeinu B'chaya. Why is the Torah telling us about this conversation? What do we take home from this? It's teaching us that even though these people were gross and disgusting, they had no yoke, they had no Yerushalayim, they had no fear of God, they had no moral compass. And you might have assumed someone like Yosef would just keep a distance, stay away from them. I'm not going to schmooze with these kind of people. He didn't prevent himself from asking, what's going on? What's the problem? That's the derech ha-musr. That's what it means to be a mensch. If I see someone's not okay, I want to be there to support you. Because he saw that there was an issue, and he acted upon that re'iyah. That changed his life forever. But sometimes, when we find ourselves in our own base surim, in our own prisons, in our own limitations, it's very hard to see outside. When the Malachim go to Lot, and we have the entire city now surrounding the house, trying to break down the door, something miraculous happens. It says, All the men who are around the opening of the door, they were struck with blindness from the young to the old. And what did they do? They kept on trying to find the door. They couldn't see anything. They were struck with blindness, but they kept on pushing their way, feeling, where's the door? Let's break it down and get, get those malachim, get those men inside the house. Sometimes the second reason why we have a hard time seeing on a deeper level is because we're so incredibly stuck in our old ways, or we're so driven, either with a passion or based on habit, but we're so in this mindset of tzimtzum, of narrowness, we can't see outside of ourselves. The Svorno says that even though these men were all struck with blindness, and the natural response would have been, once, gentlemen, one second, Tommy, can you see? No. Jim, can you see? No. Harold? Uh-uh. Okay, guys, something's going on here, right? Maybe we should reconsider. <laughs> but that's not what they did, right? <laughs> they just kept on, on trying to find the door. It didn't even faze them that they couldn't see anymore. They were so driven. We find the exact same thing with Bilam. Bilam is on his way to curse the Jewish people, and then suddenly something very strange happens. His donkey starts to speak to him. Not a common occurrence. Right? Doesn't happen that often. What's the response of Bilam? He starts arguing back. Right? 
you're asking me why I turned off the road? It's very simple, all right? Or you're asking me, why did I kick you? Why did I hit you? Because you veered off the derech. What are you doing? You're supposed to be my trustworthy donkey, right? It's a whole back and forth as if he doesn't realize that this is not a normal occurrence. There, the Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar says again, a similar idea. He says, really, Bilam should have been floored. He should have fainted right there. He should have passed out based on shock and awe. And it might have dawned on him, hey, maybe this is God trying to send me a message. He did communicate with me earlier that he might not be a fan of this mission. And now my donkey is speaking with me. Mm, maybe that means something, right? But no, explains Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, of a mitoch achzorius, based on his cruelty, veroa tivo, and the, 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 the evilness of his nature, umerov cheftzo. This is the most powerful phrase. And from his strong desire, leleches, to go and to curse the Jews, it didn't even cause him to pause. Something totally supernatural didn't even get me to ask the question, what's going on here? Meirov chetzo. When we really want to do something, then we don't see anything else but the goal. Now these two examples, people trying to break into Lot's house, and Bilaam on his way to curse the Jews, obviously that's with negative intention. But the amazing thing is this also applies when we have a noble goal. When we're set on doing something because we know it's the right thing. And I'm not going to care no matter what you say, no matter how much they make fun of me, no matter how much they say it's only a dream and it's not a possibility, and you can't really accomplish that. We could take that exact same mida of tuning out everything around us and be totally focused, because I want it so badly, sometimes not being able to see anything else besides what I'm focused on is the greatest bracha in the world. We just have to channel it in the right direction. If you've seen Gedola Yisrael, right, what, is their, what is their experience when they're learning Torah? They could be sitting in a room filled with noise, clutter, right? everything and anything going on, but they're so zoned in, they're so obsessed with what's in front of them. I'm here just reading the Gemara, nothing else even enters my mind. So the second reason why we have a hard time seeing on a deeper level is because oftentimes we're stuck in our old patterns, either based on habit or desire, but we could use that exact same character trait, Latov, in a very positive direction. Avram Avinu did that. As he was taking Yitzchak, famous Chazal, that says the Satan was playing games with him, and he was getting him to, to ask himself questions and, and second-guess himself, and maybe it's not the right thing, and how could I possibly take my son to the Shechem, and it's against everything I believe in. And every time a question entered his mind, what did he say? al Cain. Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Maybe I'm an achzar. Maybe I'm a cruel guy. Maybe, maybe Hashem didn't really speak to me. Maybe. Obviously he knew that Hashem really spoke with him. But sometimes the only way to continue on your mission without being stared, without being swept away in other directions, you have to say, I'm not going to look outside of what I'm going for. It could cause us to be blind to reality, but it could also cause us to be totally focused on reality. I think the third and last point 
why sometimes seeing deeper is, is difficult is based on a, a poem. Right? Who was the author of this poem? A man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. Simon and Garfunkel, right? The boxer? Is that the boxer? Yes. Yes. A man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. Sometimes the reason we don't see deeper, we don't see the truth, is because deep down we're scared of the truth. I remember having a conversation with a young man. He was at FAU at the time. And he kept on going back and forth for probably two and a half years to go to Israel, to go to yeshiva. He has plans. He's going to go January time. But then it doesn't work out. Okay, maybe in the summer we'll, we'll do it then. Then something comes up. And on and on, being inspired, wanting to to learn, but then not really, not really getting there. So I remember having a very frank conversation with him. And basically what he was saying, he didn't mean to say this, but this is what he meant, is that I'm afraid to go to Jerusalem to learn because I, I know myself, and I know that if I start getting into it and enjoying the learning, then I might, I might be stuck in that world because it might speak to me on such a deep level that I might actually have to stay religious, God forbid. Right? So I told him, I said, it, it seems to me that your greatest difficulty in your search for truth is the fear of actually finding it. Right? Your greatest difficulty in your search for truth is the fear of actually finding it. That's the third reason why sometimes we don't see beneath the surface. Maybe I don't want to fully understand what she's thinking. Maybe I don't fully want to, want to be involved with this on, on a deeper level because that creates more of a responsibility or that might create more sense of guilt if I don't follow through. We're very, very complicated people. Tara says that when you see someone's animal wandering around, you see someone's ox or someone's sheep wandering. Don't be misalim. Don't turn away. Don't hide your eye from it, but rather return the animal to its owner. Rashi explains that if you see it, right, it's somewhat confusing. If you see it, the Torah is telling us don't not see it. So am I seeing it or not? So says Rashi, Lo tira oso mimenu. Don't see it in a way where you're going to now force yourself not to see it. Right? Although it's on my radar, but I don't want to have to get involved with that and schlepping it back to its owner. I never really saw anything. Explains Risham Shunrafal Hirsch. He says what the Pusik is telling us is, you may not see it with a making yourself not see it look. Meaning to say, don't pretend. Don't fool other people, but even more so, don't fool yourself. So there are two types of ria. There's ria mamish, there's good old-fashioned being able to see what's in front of me. That's for a behema. Those are for the animals grazing in the field. They see the grass, and they go towards it, and they eat it. 
They see the water and they go towards it and they drink it. And then you have Revia, Re'iya number two, which is Havana. When it comes to our Avodas Hashem, when it comes to our tefillah, when it comes to any mitzvah that we're engaged in, when it comes to Bein Adam Lachavera, our relationships, we can never be complacent with just seeing something externally or superficially. The opposite of spirituality is chitzonius, is not allowing myself or not pushing myself to probe deeper. What happens when I'm living with the desire always to get deeper? Then Vayar Hashem ki sarliros, Hashem, just like Moshe Rabbeinu, he sees that we're turning aside because Habola Tahir, we're coming closer. We want to know what's going on in your mind. I want to know what's actually happening in this situation, what this relationship really is, what it's not. I want to know where I am or where I'm not. Then Hashem calls out to us. Then we get ourselves to a whole different level. We should be zochet to really see each other, to see a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and to see ourselves. Shkoyach.